Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And welcome back to an early morning Epic versus Apple video here, even though as part of our an antitrust Epic playlist, we talked about day three in the Epic case in our video Xbox on trial, which you can check out on that playlist. As it turns out, after we had recorded our video and there were still a couple of hours of testimony left yesterday, some, as Tim Sweeney likes to say, fireworks appeared in that testimony. So I wanted to talk to you about them to get a catch up, just really finish off day three before we advance to future days in this litigation. And also, perhaps more importantly, to talk to you, as you can see in the thumbnail to this video, about our first piggyback lawsuit. Now, if you aren't familiar with this case that much, I highly recommend checking out the playlist. But one of the things that has happened throughout the motion period after Epic's complaint, throughout this trial and litigation in general, is the question of whether Epic's theory of the case, that Apple operates as a monopoly provider of access to its app store, to its iOS ecosystem, and by virtue of American antitrust law, that position as controlling access to their hardware should be deemed a monopoly and we should look at what they've done with that power in order to determine whether they violated the law, could be applied to other hardware providers, most specifically those hardware providers in the video game industry like Nintendo and their Switch, Microsoft and their Xbox, and Sony and their PlayStation. Now, this is something that Epic has tried to avoid having the judge think really from the start because If you think that Epic's theory of the case could have lasting ramifications across an entire industry sector and maybe even the entire technology sector, then as a judge, you look at things a lot more closely, a lot more carefully if it has those significant ramifications. In fact, when reviewing the preliminary injunction request from Epic and actually a counter request from Apple because it became a whole thing last fall, the judge expressed her concerns about Epic's theory of the case and its effects. Or as she said here, Epic Games' arguments distinguishing these other platforms as potential economic substitutes have not been sufficiently tested. First, Epic Games avers that the iOS market is distinct from other video game platforms because Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft do not make much profit, if any, on the sale of the hardware or console, unlike Apple, which allegedly makes significant profits from the sale of each iPhone. In fact, we saw this in yesterday's testimony when the vice president of Xbox business development, Lori Wright, at Microsoft was asked, has Microsoft ever made money on the hardware sales of an Xbox? And she said no. She also seemed a little bit unclear as to whether they've actually ever made at least a small amount of money as a generation goes on. But leaving that aside, it is undoubtedly a heavily subsidized portion of the business model for video game consoles. But the judge says that's really not how the Sherman Antitrust Act in the U.S. works. Or as she says in the next sentence, this distinction as between business models of the phone versus the hardware console is without legal precedent under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Epic is asking for something novel, and that is always a higher hill to climb than asking for something that has a lot of precedent behind it. As the judge continues, indeed, Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft all operate similar walled gardens or closed platform models as Apple, whereby the hardware operating system, digital marketplace, and IAPs are all exclusive to the platform owner. As such, a final decision should be better informed regarding the impact of the walled garden model, given the potential for significant and serious ramifications for Sony, Nintendo, and Microsoft and their video game platforms. 
as we have already seen in the first three days of testimony, one of the things that Epic is desperately trying to do as part of the early stages of this case is to establish for the judge that there are enough distinctions between the iOS ecosystem, particularly the iPhone and the iPad, tablets and mobile devices and hardware consoles under TVs that she doesn't need to be concerned about these massive ramifications. It's not actually directly related to their case against Apple. It's just that when you're asking for an equitable solution, like an injunction against Apple, the judge can have concerns about the knock-on effects of what her decision might be. And so Epic has been trying to address that. In fact, after we left looking at testimony yesterday, we saw that Epic's uh, engineer, Grant here, was defining things like a PC versus a phone, a single purpose device for entertainment as a console versus what would be a tablet. Tablets are more general purpose. Consoles are more single purpose. Grant cites the Nintendo Switch as a midpoint that's portable like a phone, but you use it with a controller that shapes interactions. And in fact, the Nintendo Switch might become a focal point of this particular case. We saw it already represented to Tim Sweeney in his testimony because it does straddle that line. It's a video game device that can still fit in your pocket as long as your pockets are fairly big, but certainly that you can take out of the house and use in a similar capacity to a cell phone and can also run Hulu and video game apps at the same time. And so you have this question as to whether or not a decision here would impact these other wall gardens. And much like the judge, and really since the start of this series in virtual legality, I've said there's not an easy way for the law to distinguish on business model grounds. The Sherman Antitrust Act is concerned about one, are you a monopoly provider? And two, have you done anything with that monopoly power to unreasonably restrain trade or otherwise use it to gain your monopoly power or retain that monopoly power? So when you start to define the relevant market as hardware manufacturer controlling access to my hardware, you potentially have all sorts of knock-on effects. And I've never truly been satisfied that Epic has addressed those terribly well. Which leads us to today in a Bloomberg article from late last night that says Sony sued for limiting purchases of games to PlayStation Store. Sony Interactive Entertainment LLC is operating an unlawful monopoly by restricting purchases of PlayStation games to its in-house store. Consumers claimed in a lawsuit. And just as a side note here, I really hate this particular turn of phrase where you say something outrageous and broad that is presented in the lawsuit, add a comma, and then say consumers claimed. Because anybody skimming this looks at it and says, this is news reporting. SIE is operating an unlawful monopoly and continues on. I just don't like that particular phraseology. Hopefully those of you that are in virtual legality are closely parsing the language used in these articles and don't have this problem, but I just don't love it. In a proposed class action suit, the gamer said Sony stopped allowing third-party retailers, including Amazon, Best Buy, and Walmart, to sell download codes for PlayStation games two years ago. As a result, Sony's PlayStation Store became the only source for digital PlayStation games. Sony's monopoly allows it to charge super competitive prices for digital PlayStation games, which are significantly higher than their physical counterparts sold in a competitive retail market and significantly higher than they would be in a competitive retail market for digital games. Or as Tom Warren identified here on Twitter, actually looking at the court case, they wind up talking about significant increases in what they assert is the cost of playing digital-only games. On April 1st, 2019, Sony eliminated retailers' ability to sell download codes for digital PlayStation games because delivering digital content to PlayStation consoles requires 
access to Sony's PlayStation Network, just sub in iOS and App Store at your convenience, the new policy established the PlayStation Store as the only source from which consumers can purchase digital PlayStation games and the only source to which video game publishers can sell digital PlayStation games. Sony also requires publishers who sell digital games on the PlayStation Store to relinquish full control over the retail price. As a result, the policy swiftly and effectively foreclosed any and all price competition in the retail market for what? For digital PlayStation games. And this is actually a response to those of you that have come into my comments and said, hey, Rick, you're wrong when you say that the walled gardens at Sony and Xbox or Nintendo are similar to what Epic is talking about with respect to the iOS because there's physical stores. One of the things that this lawsuit is limiting its action to and what I have always said they could if they wanted to try to pull this off was digital games that you can't otherwise get. Yes, you can get gift cards and things, same as you can get a gift card for iOS, but you can't get the games directly. Now, I will also say, in the absence of Sony and Epic and Apple and Microsoft and Nintendo fighting about all of this, and in the absence of an Epic win on the merits against Apple, this would not be a terribly strong argument, in my opinion. Unlike restraints of trade on just limiting what somebody can put in your store, having side apps, doing those kinds of things that Epic asks for on the iOS, actually requiring Sony to do something, requiring Sony to make available codes, requiring them to be available to be sold in a separate market is going further than just asking them to stop doing something. This is actually an affirmative request. Yes, Sony did this thing before. Sony allowed digital codes to be downloaded by their developers and to be sold in other marketplaces. And yes, there was, in all likelihood, some price competition across those various markets. But Sony is allowed to ascertain its own business, is allowed to ascertain what is making it money, what makes sense for it to still continue to support at a platform level, and is allowed to say, no, we don't want to do that affirmative step anymore. We're going to take it out. And if they can justify it for a business reason, they're really not going to lose on a Sherman antitrust case. Now, it's also worth noting, this is actually very early stages attempting to establish a class action, as we've talked about in virtual legality. This is often done as early as possible because law firms like to go and try to get first position to potentially be the law firm that's in charge of a major class because in class actions on consumer technology questions, for the most part, the folks that are getting paid are the lawyers. Uh, and so lawyers are often going out and looking for cases like this, looking for sympathetic plaintiffs to go and certify a class. This is many, 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 many steps away from actually coming to fruition, having a certified class, proceeding with a trial. And in all honesty, the reason I pointed out here is because it's a little earlier than I would have thought. This looks to me like a lawsuit filed in the mid middle of Epic versus Apple, where someone looks at the first couple of days of testimony and says, you know what? Epic has a non-zero chance of winning this thing, which I've always said from the start. Nobody can guess at how a Sherman antitrust action is going to go. Epic has a non-zero chance of winning. And if they do win, well, the floodgates open. You can sue on all sorts of grounds, very similar to this one, because if Epic wins on Apple is a monopolist provider of access to its ecosystem, there isn't anybody in video games that isn't. And then you have to start evaluating all of their behaviors, all of their actions, all of what they've done. It's not just 30% cuts. It's, hey, you rescinded the ability to sell digital games. It's any other kind of behavior that you might think is happening in their ecosystem. And maybe you're okay with that. And I would challenge you on it. I'd love to have the discussion with you, maybe in the comments to this video, but it will upend the video game industry and the models that are available, including the models that Microsoft says never make it money on hardware, only make its money through software. The question would be, 
Could these actual models survive something like that? Some kind of opening up that Epic would essentially mandate if they won this kind of fight against Apple. And you can think Epic is completely in the right and you can think this is all justified because that's fair and that's justice. That's okay. But we have to understand that these kinds of lawsuits aren't going away if, especially if Epic wins a final decision, which is probably years away. People have come also into my comments and said, well, will this get finished when the judge makes a ruling? And I really don't see a world in which the loser of this case doesn't appeal it. And I think the judge has even said so herself. I don't think this stops on my desk, I think is something along the lines of what she said, because this is so important. This is billions of dollars. This is business models on the mobile side, potentially business models on the hardware console side, if not other pieces of technology across the country that you really do have a vested interest, even if you're the loser, to kind of see this through to the end. So despite what Epic has said, and as I've said throughout this series, Epic is not the final arbiter of what lawsuits pop out of its theory. Others are going to take a look at this, are going to seize this opportunity, plaintiff's attorneys, class action attorneys to say, okay, well, if this is the theory, what can I sue? Who can I sue? Who's doing bad things or potentially bad things? How can I go get paid? That's the nature of the law, at least in the United States. And so that's one of the reasons I've said that throughout this series. Now, I also wanted to follow up, as I said at the top of this video, with Engineer Grant's testimony for Epic because it got very, very fiery, especially from the Apple attorneys. Now, if you followed yesterday's video, you saw that one of the things I said was, well, attorneys can get too aggressive depending on what's happening. And Lori Wright over at Microsoft was clearly frustrating the aims of the Apple attorneys in a way that was bothering them, at least as reported through these live tweets and other avenues that I've looked at in making these videos. And you can run afoul of things. You can get the judge to not listen to you on questions if you're being a little bit sarcastic, snarky, or worse, depending on the case. That's what happens here. And we're going to talk about it. I think this actually goes a little bit better for Apple than yesterday's uh, discussion. These both were happening yesterday in terms of testimony, but the discussion that we had here in virtual legality yesterday. And it's interesting to see why that difference might be. So as Addie Robertson at The Verge says, we're moving to cross-examination. Lawyer is asking if Grant was involved in the process of submitting Fortnite to app review for iOS. Grant says yes. Describes process that could take under an hour, could take multiple business days. Epic could ask for and sometimes received requests for expedition. Now, this is important. Apple's trying to establish a number of things here, but one of them is that Epic's claim that 30% is ridiculously high because all Apple is is a payment processor. One of the ways Apple is trying to defend against that is by saying, hey, we do a lot of stuff. We protect the security of our ecosystem, maybe not well, which is one of the things Epic tries to poke holes in throughout this testimony and in earlier motions in this case. But we do these kinds of things. So you get an answer from Epic's engineer and says, hey, it could take multiple business days. Apple is probably doing something during that time. Maybe the counter is Apple's just sitting on its hands. Who knows? But that Apple was also honoring requests for expedition. That's one of the pieces of evidence that Apple brought up in its own motions. Hey, they asked us for, I think it was like 90 some odd requests for expedition because they make so much money. Apple was all too happy to help them out. Lawyer asked if updates were rejected. Grant cites objections to the way in which certain features were phrased in the app notes. Includes Epic re referring to an early feature as experimental. Tell us what you think. And the app review team did not like that and asked us to change it. It's funny, actually. I think when I was in the business of helping write application descriptions way back when for a couple of games that my brother and I released, I believe we got flagged by app review for some bit of language that we used that I can't quite remember, but it was similar to this one, which was we put something in here, let us know what you think 
Uh, and Apple didn't like that for some reason that I can't remember. I apologize. It's not a better story than that. But I do certainly recall having a certain amount of fickleness with dealing with getting something approved to go into the App Store, which depending on your side of this particular issue, you could say is just Apple being ridiculous and controlling its market too much, or is Apple doing its job and earning some of that 30% by making sure there's a certain amount of clarity in their marketplace. As you can see, none of this case is easy and there are arguments to be had really on both directions. At one point, Apple changed how much budgeted memory they had, so we had to significantly reduce the amount of memory that Fortnite required. Grant cites some more issues and Judge breaks in and he's listening uh, to them. She's she's listing them. Uh, and one of the things I would point out here uh, is a number of people ask me in comments and on tweets and things about whether it's normal for the judge to ask questions like this. The answer is yes. This is a bench trial. This doesn't have a jury. So the judge is the finder of fact as well as the determiner of the law and the law's application to those facts. So it's not at all uncommon for a judge to pop in and ask for clarity because she's in the best position to know what additional information she's going to need to make the ultimate determination in the case. So she pops in and says, why do you want to use Apple if it's so terrible? At which point we get a little back and forth and the judge asks if bugs and issues are worse on Apple than Android. How imperfect is it? Is the experience comparable with Apple and Android or is Apple just that much worse than Android? Grant says it's comparable, calls Apple engineers great. So again, we're trying to get at, does Apple do anything to earn its 30%? And one of the things that I've talked about in this series is that Epic goes too far by saying they're Stripe or a payment processor because undoubtedly they do something. Epic might have had a stronger case if they said it should be 12%, which matches what they do at the Epic Game Store. But instead they said, oh, it should be 3% and 5% and it's 10 times more than other payment processors and those kinds of things. And so you do get into a situation where the judge starts asking, well, what does Apple do? Is Android so much better than Apple? These kinds of things. And ultimately, it's going to lead into a bit of a fight. Apple is now moving to one of its big talking points. Epic has developer agreements, just like Apple does, on Unreal Engine and within Fortnite. And I know a number of you uh, that believe that Apple should win this case have come to me with these kinds of arguments. And I think they are strong arguments uh, for Apple, but you can see them framed as the lawyer does here in this tweet thread. People who cheat within Fortnite can be permanently banned. Is that right? People always find new ways to cheat and people get away with it until they're caught. Is that fair? Epic's brand and Fortnite success is based on people having a good experience with Fortnite. Is that correct? Everyone is on the same level playing field. If the integrity of the game falls apart and people believe the rules no longer apply to them, then people may no longer be inclined to play the game. Epic's reputation will suffer. The game will enter a downward spiral. Apple lawyers continue to have supervillain energy, says Addie Robertson with a little bit of editorial. Let's talk about honesty. You knew you were being dishonest, didn't you? You knew you were acting without integrity, weren't you? This is in reference to Epic secretly adding a payment system through the hotfix that got it kicked off the App Store. And you see all of this, and there's a couple of things happening here. One of which is in the motion stage, in interacting with the judge, you on both sides, Epic and Apple, have a certain notion of what arguments and what concerns are having at least some effect on the judge and her disposition towards one or the other party. One of those things that happened as part of the motions was that the judge clearly didn't love that the free Fortnite campaign was ready to launch as soon as this happened, clearly agreed with Apple that Epic had surreptitiously hidden something, that it was not how they should have operated under a contract that they had freely entered into. And as we've talked about in this series, that Epic could have brought its case without breaching its agreement in that way. 
And so one of the things you see Apple hitting on here is one, hey, you control what you create, don't you? You've created Fortnite. You've created the Epic Game Store. You've created the Unreal Engine. You control access to those things, right? To which Epic could respond, okay, that's software. It doesn't have a hardware component. And you might get into that argument later in this trial. Of course, that's an interesting distinction in and of itself. Does that matter for what we're talking about? You created something and you control access to it through contract terms. Does the hardware component make it different? Might, it might not. It also might make it different in the Apple case and not the Google case, where Google primarily sells Android as an operating system to other manufacturers. And as I've talked about in this series, when we were mentioning the Google case, when it didn't become apparent that Apple was going to happen so much faster, that Google might have a tougher case, even though you might not suspect it, because theirs lines up much better with the Microsoft antitrust case about selling operating systems for other system providers and then enforcing rules on the actual hardware manufacturers, where Apple doesn't do that. Apple is the sole king of iOS and doesn't have that same issue with the kind of integration across multiple markets. So even though it might feel like Android has the easier case because they allow sideloading and all this other stuff, in my opinion, if you haven't seen earlier in the series, they might wind up with the harder case because they sell their operating system into a separate market. So Apple's trying to establish, yes, we can control our access. Don't you control your access? And then also that Epic did some bad stuff. Understand from a legal perspective, Epic did some bad stuff isn't actually that compelling. This is an equitable case. They aren't asking for damages. They're asking for an injunction. So you can get into equitable doctrines that talk about the courts shouldn't help the bad actor, the one with unclean hands, that kind of thing. It doesn't really rise to that level here. If Apple, if this were just the most obvious case in the world and Apple was clearly violating antitrust laws, the fact that Epic did some surreptitious stuff, even if the judge didn't like it, wouldn't in most cases, depending on the judge, and there's no indication to believe that the judge would be kind of biased on this type of score, the judge would say, yes, you acted illegally. Yes, Epic acted badly, but that doesn't change the fact that they are offered redress from your illegal actions, Apple. But this isn't the world in which you can just say definitely Apple violated antitrust law. This is a gray area world. And when it's a gray area world, you start to bring in, well, who has the clean hands? Who's the bad actor? Who's sending bullying and self-righteous emails to every party? Who's suing us and not suing Sony when Sony asks for more money in a bigger cut with a cross-revenue share than we ever did and doesn't support cross-wallet? And how does this all look when you can frame Epic as a wildcard actor? And they have been a wildcard actor throughout all of this, regardless of whether you think Apple needs to have a comeuppance for how it enforces its terms, regardless of whether you back up, especially the other developers who Epic has had testify, and I think have compelling cases for why Apple is acting arbitrarily or potentially anti-competitively with respect to their applications. That doesn't make Epic's theory of the case, that they are solely a monopolist provider of this access for Fortnite and what Epic did in terms of breaching its agreement surreptitiously a good one. Epic is maybe the weakest plaintiff over everybody that we have seen participate in this case and otherwise comment on it. Doesn't mean they'll lose, but it does make it a higher hill to climb. Apple's now turning the Sony is tearing kids friendship apart email from Sweeney introduced on Monday back on Epic says Epic's doing the same thing by not taking third-party processing out of Fortnite and putting it back on the App Store. Now this, again, I think is a good point for purposes of talking to the judge, it isn't a terribly salient point for legal purposes, but you have to play kind of both games here when you're in a trial setting. Remember, 
earlier in this series, we talked about the fact that the judge had interjected with respect to monetization and said, basically, doesn't Fortnite have primarily kids as its audience? And shouldn't we be okay with additional friction on payments into Fortnite? And I had said, well, it's interesting that there is now this email out there where Tim Sweeney says, you have to help us, Sony, because you're tearing kids apart and our audience is kids. And Sony and Apple rightly are turning it around here and saying, not only should we remind the judge that Epic admitted that it was kids, but to say Epic saying we're tearing families apart, which they did not only in that email, but also in their motion stage, which the judge has basically already said, okay, let's enough with the rhetoric and hyperbole Epic when they talked about killing families and the dream of the metaverse and everything else, but reminding the judge of these points that are of concern to her, that kids are the audience, that Epic is self-righteous and duplicitous in saying that it's all about the kids when they could easily return the game to the store. And they've already testified that it's only about 7%, I think was the number, of people on iOS that actually pay money into the Fortnite ecosystem. So they have taken away the rights of 93 some odd percent of their audience solely because they wanted to take this fight to Apple. That this is a good mechanism, even though, again, it doesn't actually speak to whether Apple is doing something that is a violation of the antitrust laws in the United States, which is one of the things I wanted to talk to you all about. There are a lot of areas of this trial, a lot of areas of this litigation and any litigation where you're you're talking about the legal points, you're talking about what might make up a legal violation, but you're also talking about the jury or in this case, the judge in a bench trial, trying to understand what her concerns are, where her, if you're on one side of the case or the other, weaknesses might be, where her sensitivities might lie so that you can try to appeal to those in the testimony. And I do think kids is something that wasn't really that apparent at the motion stage, but is probably being seized upon by Apple behind the scenes because of that interjection and because of some other interjections that the judge has made saying, you know, Fortnite appears to take most of its money from kids. I'm not sure this is the hill that we should be having this fight on as Epic tries to bring in other apps of potentially more quote unquote importance, depending on course, on how important you frame Fortnite. And that was the testimony from day three. So overall, we've got a brand new piggyback lawsuit, despite the fact that Epic said that there couldn't be these kinds of things because that's not their theory of the case. Of course there could be. It's not Epic's decision to make. We've got brand new testimony from the engineer at Epic trying to make the case that phones are significantly distinguishable from consoles and the law shouldn't apply in that direction when, as we've already talked about, It's not really Epic's choice to make if they win the case on the theory that they have presented. And Apple coming hard at the fact that Epic, of course, does license things, does control access, does provide rules and contours around what you are allowed to do with their services and their products in a way that is very similar to Apple. They just disagree on the numbers and hey, that's competition. Apple's got the audience. Apple's got the brand recognition. Epic wants to break in but maybe it would be better for them to compete on the phone side rather than trying to simply break into the software that's running Apple's hardware. It will certainly be a continuingly interesting aspect of the discussion to be had on day four, plus in this lawsuit that is gonna go for, I think more than a fortnight, maybe a fortnight from here, 
based on the pace in which they're going through witnesses. If you enjoy these conversations about Epic versus Apple, big tech, video games, and all the rest, please consider supporting the channel. We couldn't do it without you. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, a store, and if none of those appeal to you, just subscribe, ring bells, upvote, downvote, comment, all the rest. It helps YouTube know that we exist. Share it. Tell your friends. Put it on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. Go on Facebook. Put it wherever you think people might be interested in having this conversation, learning this information, and hopefully being informed and entertained about one of the biggest trials and biggest lawsuits uh, in our time, really. If you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.